Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another excellent episode of Inspiration Point. I'm Adam, and Andrew isn't with us tonight. Uh, instead, I'm joined by a special guest, someone we've chatted about and mentioned a lot on the show, uh, one of our patrons as well, and an expert dungeon master, the uh, talented and handsome Spike Murphy Rose. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. May the force <laughs> be with you. Also, happy yeah. Dave Brubeck Day. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> Same to you. I, you know, we had a uh, a dress down day at the school where I work, and uh, I forgot about it. So I showed up in my tie, and everybody else had their Star Wars gear, and they just like looked at me like, "Dude, you were supposed to be like the guy." <laughs> yeah, and I just let them all down. Uh, that's uh, honestly, I'm with the kids on this one. Like, y- you could do better. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I don't deserve pity. Yeah. Um. My, my little, I guess, is she, is she my niece? My, my cousin's kid. Uh, it's her birthday today, and so she started out in a Darth Vader costume, and then uh, uh Princess Leia, and then she was just Princess Amelia because you know it's Amelia's birthday, but she's like five. Um, and just, it's just good to see the next generation being raised right. That is good, especially since the current one, me, is letting them down. So um, that is good that someone's picking up the the slack. Um, I'm glad to hear that. So listen, I I uh, used to listen to Gilbert Gottfried's podcast a lot, actually, <laughs> and he used to give the most uh, epic intros to his guests, and I just uh, didn't have that much ready to go. So what I want to know is, like, you know, what is kind of the uh, spike resume? going into um this you know role as a guest here and you know what is your title what titles do you possess what are the the medals you've earned uh the that sort of thing um i mean i i've i've had a a strange and varied background i guess uh but related to gaming uh i have been playing since I was nine or 10, I got introduced to D and D a little bit earlier than that. I actually, yeah. I looked it up today, uh, issue 62 of transformers, which was released in January <laughs> of 1990, though. I believe I picked it up in December of 89 from the like store in the tiny, like it's like the general store in this tiny town we lived in, in the mountains of New Jersey. And, uh, I vividly remember getting that. Cause it was like my first comic book I got to buy myself. It was a transformers comic. It was like super weird because transformers, was super weird at that point, but it had all the ads for um, D&D that were in it and like in the back and stuff. And that was my first real exposure. I was like, what is this? I need to know. Look at that dragon. I was really into dragons. I don't know why. They're like dinosaurs, I guess, but magic. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I had forced myself to learn to read um, because of a reading program they had when I was in like kindergarten over the summer. And uh, uh, you got like more books you read, you got points and you could get all this dragon themed like loot, like a backpack or a little dragon doll or whatever. And I really wanted that, but they hadn't taught us to read yet. Um, So I was like on my parents about that, making them like help (laughs) me learn to read, which was mostly like them reading the book and me reading. But like I was I did start to get it. And um, because I was like, I was going to be if not knowing how to read was going to keep me from getting that dragon, which I think I got a sticker or something. I don't know. I got, I, I read five books by the end of the summer. So that's something, but uh, yeah. Uh, but what I, a great story. 
So I, I've been kind of super into fantasy, and that's been my approach to most of the things that I'm like I have a hobby about. I'm the type of guy who's like, oh, I, that sounds interesting. Let me learn everything about it. Um, and you know, kind of obsessive in that way. So, uh, uh, you know, I got really into fantasy stuff. I played Tunnels and Trolls for the first time when I was about nine or ten, which is like D and D, but about tunnels and trolls uh slightly different system but that was my first exposure to that other than though i had been playing like video games and stuff that got me into that like you know zelda and stuff back in the day and then played dungeons and dragons proper for the first time when i was in third grade and um and i played a version of the becmi uh it was called the classic dungeons and dragons that they released it's kind of like a starter set but it was the uh, uh the beckme dnd rule set um or at least as of the rule compendium set that was in there and that was like my first first time really playing like dnd i'd already read dragonlance and the lord of the rings and the hobbit uh and so i wanted my first character to be an uh, a half elf and this is in in uh beckme uh all the demi-human races were classes so you were like a level 10 halfling or a level 12 right. elf or whatever and so there wasn't a half elf class and so the dm said like okay well we'll have you do the elf but you don't get any of the magical abilities which basically meant i was a fighter <laughs> that was one of many like mistakes we made in the game too like he thought oh, that sure. you could only move uh, one square uh, around. So combat took like a super long time. Um, <laughs> you know, we were, it used Thacko back in the day. So you had these two hit matrixes and stuff. It was just extra math for figuring out how to hit. And, uh, you know, he thought that you used the Thacko chart based off of the hit die of the monster rather than your own hit die. So the bigger and badder the monster got, somehow the easier it got to hit and the harder a time they had hitting us. Uh but we eventually, I actually went home and I designed my first dungeon, uh, not even like after the first session, not wow. knowing any of the rules. So I just got like just sheets of this kind of parchment looking like con- paper. It wasn't construction paper, but it we had. And then um, my dad had grabbed a bunch of like seismograph paper, basically, that he had from his uh, lab. He worked up at UCSC. Uh, and so I took strips of it and I cut them and I cut off the borders and I taped them together so I could make a grid map. And then I drew a map of like a dungeon after I like drew a hand map and even made like a little prop map for the players to find. And I, I still remember the plot, like very, very basic. The party's in a tavern. Suddenly a horde of orcs attacks the town that they're in, which is... I don't know, capital of a kingdom or duchy or barony or whatever. It doesn't, it I, didn't matter. Um, <laughs> but the orcs are like pouring in. Uh, the party fights some of them out in the streets. And, uh, but the orcs get away with the princess or the duke's daughter oh, or whatever. <laughs> On one of the orcs' bodies, they get the map that I made, which I like crumpled up and I ran through the dryer and I like oh, soaked wow. it in tea and I burned the edges and everything. And then, yeah. um, and that just led to a, a dungeon in the nearby forest. And they had to go through a swamp. And it's like, okay, let's make a couple of random encounter rolls. And then I, I designed a dungeon and then I was like, I'll fill in the rules once I get a rule book. And that's what I did. Um, I actually, I've been, I had that until I guess probably a few years. At some point it got lost. Uh, I still feel like it's somewhere floating around my attic, but I would love to dig up that dungeon and be able to run it again. Cause it didn't make a lot of sense. 
but um it was still Maybe a, that's good yeah it had a lot of fun stuff to do it was very much predicated on like well this is a dungeon and it's gonna be full of crazy stuff that the necromancer put in here who was i think the king's advisor or something like that and he was actually yeah. like his name spelled backwards because i was clever for a nine-year-old i guess <laughs> I mean, I think that's a pretty solid plot, right? I think you must have seen like a Disney movie once, like a, a lot of that stuff's there, right? Uh huh. You know, <laughs> there's well, a lot of good, good, uh, tropes in there that I think make a lot of sense. And you, uh, don't waste a lot of time. You make the story exciting right away. I think that that showed a lot. Yeah. Well, and that's the, uh, I'd already been reading a lot by that point. And that was a okay. big part of that. Like I said, like I'd already read all the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. I had read through all of Dragonlance. Um, it, you know, I, I got into the Lord of the Rings very early on. Um, my mom showed us the old, she rented their old Ralph Bakshi video right after we moved to California. And I, that stuck in my head. I was like, I got to find out more about that. And then, um, uh, at the local library when we were learning how to use library systems at my grade school also in third grade we went to the local library and we're learning how to use that and i was looking up any any book that had the word blade or sword in it i was just trying to find fantasy stuff and there was an error in the catalog and it put um blade it put blade runner do androids dream of electric sheep in the children's book section in the catalog <laughs> even though like in the actual library physically it was in the regular like adult fiction section where it should be but it showed up in the kids like computer catalog and so i was like oh blade runner that sounds sweet and oh my gosh yeah and so i read that and that was my oh my god like you should have seen my summer school teacher was so upset when we like had to write these like short story fictions and it was about this grizzled detective like busting a drug ring operating in like a futuristic city like (laughs) you can't write about space crack like (laughs) oh see teachers nowadays would just be like oh my god you wrote a sentence oh a plus um but that's awesome. That's yeah. so, <laughs> that's the good stuff. So I feel like I was in- inducted into this stuff very early. You know, you guys have talked yeah. a lot about like the hero's journey. And while I didn't have any kind of formal, you know, stu- schooling uh, uh, about that, I yeah. picked up on these things and playing sure. through the kind of progression that TSR tried to build for new mm-hmm. players. Like as much as people like to criticize all the old box sets and the gimmicks, like the CDs and the, pre like the character pre-gen cards that they had in those like that worked like as a kid it made it easier for me to get into dnd i couldn't afford a player's handbook uh even the box sets were expensive but thankfully kb toys uh bought a bunch of them thinking that they were cd-rom games and then discovering they were actually just dnd adventures that happened to have a cd soundtrack with it and so oh. i could buy them for five bucks from the discount section oh my gosh yeah so that- kb toys wow that's a reference mm-hmm so that was how I got um, First Quest and the early like Mistara box sets like Karamekos and Glantry. And they had a whole series of adventures set in what they were trying to make their new or, or what was their default setting for for D&D, not AD&D, but for D&D, uh, uh, which was the known world or Mistara. And so I got to get exposed to that. And it was it went from like playing board games like Dragon Strike and uh, Talisman, which is Games Workshop, but Dragon Strike was from TSR, had this super cheesy video, but it was a, you know, stripped down board game version of D&D. And then you went to First Quest, which was slightly more advanced versions of the rules, but you were still using pre-gen characters, 
but it was getting much closer to playing like a real D and D or a D and D. And then that was literally like overlapped with the classic or original like D and D rules. Uh, the Beck the beginner expert companion master and immortal, uh, set that was, you know, what existed outside of advanced dungeons and dragons. So even though we think that D and D has been this big continuous progression of one edition to the next, um, multiple editions have existed at the same time before, which is what was existing up through the nineties. Um, and that eventually led me to AD&D uh, and um, second edition. But when you played through that stuff, they were trying to teach the players and the dungeon masters like how you play the game, how you do the story. It wasn't just about like learning how to roll a D20 and add things together. It was about telling you you know, how you decided where you're going to go and how you interacted with NPCs and how you were go- progressed through an adventure. And through the like the text they had in there, but even more so, frankly, like the CDs that they included, which a lot of people made fun of, and certainly the music is all MIDI generated. The voice acting is questionable at times, but <laughs> it gave you an idea of how to interact. And as a kid, you didn't right. notice any like any of that. It was, I mean, it was amazing. Uh, you, you know, it was like a dwarf was right there, or you could hear what orcs <laughs> sounded like, or a magic missile, and the added that extra bit of immersion that your imagination was easily able to fill in all those blank spots. But it also taught you, this is how you talk to NPCs. This is how you talk in character. This is how you figure out where the quest is, where you're supposed to go. This is how you negotiate getting a reward. And this is how you like get there and you can expect a random encounter probably. And then this is how you go through the dungeon. And everyone is a different one. Like a first quest they start you out with a, a a mini dungeon crawl going through like an old castle. The next one is a haunted house that is like very much like meant to be Ravenloft themed and introduce you to Ravenloft and is not about like beating, like fighting the bad guy. You have to solve the puzzle yeah. and find out what happened. Uh, the third adventure is uh, you go into space and do like wild jammer because they're like, Hey, Fantasy can be fantastic, like super fantastic, and they want to introduce that element. And then the last one, you're going to Mount Dread to deal with the big bad evil guy in his giant dungeon that they tell you, like, okay, this one is going to take multiple sessions. The party, like, they should expect and you should tell them as a DM that they may have to leave and go back to town and then come back a couple of times to be able to get through this. And here's how you handle that. And here's how, like, what the monsters do in the downtime and stuff like that. And so it was meant not to just teach the players, but the DM and the group as a whole, this is how you D&D. And that's something that the later editions, I think, um, missed uh, to some degree. Like they had their beginner sets, but they didn't have that structure to it. And, um, you know, I think what we've seen with 5e, part of the reason it's been so successful is because of uh, they've cr- created some of that structure again with the adventure passes they've been re- re- uh, released. And while there's been like a lack of like deep lore books and tons of splat books like there were in the older editions, I think they've used that to funnel more players to having to either make your own stuff or you use the pre-printed adventures. And that's how you get to experience the D&D world. Rather than trying to create this overwhelming amount of lore, they're like, we're going to give you our game world through how you experience it, through adventures. Though, I mean, certainly they've been 
taking a different tack by releasing actual lore books for other settings like you know Ravnica and Eberron and uh, uh, Theros and stuff like that. But you know, at its core, it's still very much driven about releasing these like campaign style adventures. We've only seen them recently um, getting to providing more just free form. Like here's a bunch of adventures that you can kind of use and string together. And I think part of that is because with this new, this huge influx of new players to D and D, they've been trying to teach everyone again. Here's how you D and don't think they've done it perfectly, but I do think right. that's a big part of their success. And um, obviously, you can tell, I think, way too much about D&D. <laughs> like, from the point I talked about learning about basic D&D, I have not stopped playing it. I have not stopped running it. I've played through every edition except for fourth, where I went over to Pathfinder, which I still run and love that as well, because it's just another version of D&D. I play a lot of, a lot of other RPGs as well. Um, or I should say I run a lot of other RPGs. I, I don't get to play much these days. And then um, I've contributed to a couple of Nord Games books, uh, Spectacular Settlements and Treacherous Traps, yep. uh, a little bit like not deserving any credit, but I did get to at least be in the room and pitch some ideas for uh, uh, Alchemy and their crafting book that just came out as well. But that is majority JVC Perry and uh, and of course Andrew, who did like I think the vast majority of the work on that book. Uh, yeah yeah it's actually incredible i it's just it's so much in there um but yeah it, i wanted to know kind of what was going on there with your connection to nord games are you are you working on any projects currently other than like sort of the hobby side like providing for your friends and uh, and that sort of thing not right now i've been doing uh a, a little bit of work with a kickstarter that just wrapped up for a board game and we're looking at what That's comes great. next with that you know we still want to push uh post sales and are looking to get some distribution going and stuff um but uh, as far as like direct gaming work uh, i'm not doing anything right now though i'm keeping my ear to the ground and i just try to make my presence known i've uh my day job is marketing i have uh, clients outside of gaming that i've worked for for a long time doing that i've done work for that in gaming that's how i got involved with nord in the first place uh well really was just harassing them about critical hit decks and um uh, (laughs) ideas for spectacular settlements like that's how i met andrew saying like hey can i make a flying castle with this and if i can't why not um (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a good question yeah and that's that's why that kind of stuff got added um but uh, and from there, I just kind of, I make a lot of noise. I take up space. It's something that, <laughs> uh, I mean, I do, and it's something that I'm aware of and it is both a positive trait of mine and it's yeah. also a negative trait. So it's something I have to keep in check. Uh, but at the <laughs> same time, it does create opportunities. And in the case of Nord games, it was, they are nearby. Uh, I realized, you know, I was interacting with these people and I like them. And we had common interests, and there were ways that I could help them. And so that was how I got involved working with them. And I was like, hey, I'm going to put in the work and make my presence known and take up space uh, to create this opportunity. And, um, you know, I think it worked well uh, for a long time. Things changed in the pande- during the pandemic. And yeah. they had to, you know, tighten in a, a lot of people. They had a lot, frankly, let a lot of people go which is understandable. Um, you know, they had to do what sure. they had to do to keep the company afloat. So, um, you know, no hard feelings there or anything like that. Uh, and I still try to support them uh, in the ways that I can, just giving them, a, you know, shout outs here and there. And, right. uh, I, you know, I do work. I, 
I like to help people make connections with each other. If I know a designer friend who, you know, uh, can help someone, whether it's like an artist, like one of their artists they use, Karen Petrasco, is a friend of mine, my wife's, and yeah. we, that I introduced them to, uh, to Andrew, who was like, I want her for her work for our books. And so she works for them now. JBC Perry, I, I mean, he'd been working with Laura Smith for a long time. And then, but I had brought up a number of times uh, to uh, Nord when they were looking for uh, to hire another writer to uh, work on a bunch of their books. And, um, and I knew he had the chops and we knew each other from a Forgotten Realms Sages group. And um, so I like to connect people that way uh, if I can, because a rising tide lifts all ships. And hopefully I find some work in there uh, in between. And yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, and it's definitely something that I've observed. I find that you often, you know, try to lend aid. And to help the people make those connections, which I have appreciated. I haven't always followed up on all of it, but I always feel like I should. (laughs) So that's something. Well, you know, I don't expect anything. And, you know, it's my way for making up for the fact that I can also be an asshole. So I I try not to, (laughs) but, you know, it happens. Well, you got something to say. You have strong opinions. (laughs) And that is, you know, I I think a lot of us learn to sort of temper that. But there is something lost in that temperance as well so yeah you're right it I, there's blessing and curse I, in there I, i'm a fighter like that's you know i will I, <laughs> that's your class it, it, i mean well yeah it's been my class a lot but i mean frankly as far as my attitude toward things like if i have an opinion about something that i feel like i'm informed about and i hope to be informed about i do try to be aware sure. when i have ignorance um then you know you have to uh, I, I'm going to have a strong opinion about that, especially if it's something where uh, there's very clear cut evidence, um, sure. you know, climate change is real or something like that. Like that should not be controversial. That should not be a political statement. Um, but it's been like turned into that. And that's something that like I will argue with you about because I know like I do at some at some level, I do believe in the concept of truth. I know that that's. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, you know, that may just be a concept, um, but I do think that some things are more true than others. I think that we are able to discern, if not total truth, at least, you know, uh, uh, enough truth, enough of what is true to say that some things are true and some things are not. It's a phrase I often use with a friend of mine who who teaches philosophy at the school, and and he he really makes me dig deep about a lot of things. A, a lot of times, the best explanation I can provide is for all intents and purposes. Like that is like my my uh, my phrase. I, yeah. I try to use to compete at all. But uh, I want to kind of change gear a little bit and and make sure that I get to the really good stuff. Uh, um, I mean not. I mean, your personality is great, but let's talk about D and D. Let's talk about um, this hobby and, and your relationship with it. Uh, so, like, first of all, like, how many games are you currently involved in? Well, that's actually shrunk recently. Um, I run a Star Wars game. I play in your Storm King's Thunder game. Um, yep. I guess we can say I'm involved in the venture game too because of all the stuff we do via email. Before I, I yep. left that group, and then. Um, I run two different games on Fridays and then, uh, five E games, one of which you're in. And, yep. uh, then I have, 
an, I have another 5e game I was running on Saturdays that is on hiatus until we can meet in person uh, next month because we'll all be vaccinated and stuff by then. Um, that yeah. was a group where the the remote dynamic was just not working um, for like a number of reasons. But it was like, you know what, sure. guys, like we need to stop having bad everybody. sessions. I'd rather just take like a month and a half off and come back to it when we know they can be good. Um, and I recently ended uh, a Carbon 2185 game, which is Cyberpunk 5e get, that I was running. Um, though technically I owe my players like another page of finale, like right up. Um, and uh, and now I'm working on running a game for my wife, just like me and her. Um, That's great. Yeah. Okay. And uh, which of those games is your favorite and why is it Blood and Thunder? <laughs> you know it's hard for me to say there's things that i like about each group in each game um the i ran a bunch of pre-printed adventures and i've run a bunch of homebrew stuff i like to run big interconnected plots it's just the way my brain works i've tried to move away from that with this act of my campaigns though Mm -hmm. i did plan to move away from that and have the second act of all of my like games be ones that were seemingly unconnected and then would turn out to all be connected to the original plot at the very end as the setup for act three um which is going to involve a lot of high level characters um so i'm going the marvel route with this i I love what the mcu did uh and that is something that like reaching back to that old school DD that i grew up with and that like not only did i get to play early stuff but I was uh, adopted by the local gaming community here in Santa Cruz, which had existed since the early days of D&D and which produced a number of game designers like Mike Pondsmith, creator of Cyberpunk. Uh, he was a local and he wrote that game here and playtested it with a bunch of the same folks I grew up gaming with. Uh, uh, T.S. Lucart, who writes for Cubicle 7 now and has done tons of Warhammer and Lord of the Rings RPG stuff. Um, uh, you know, he also like, he basically mentored me when I was a, a teen, uh, learned like getting into the gaming scene here and stuff. And, um, I got to l- hear those stories from them of what D and D used to be like, uh, like when they were growing up, when they were my age. And so I got to hear about those kind of early style adventures where, or campaigns, I should say, where they were, they went to the high levels and, uh, it was much more frequent and people moved in and out and they were interconnected. I also was a big fan of Dragon Magazine and they would tell stories at, at like various points, either in the letters or every once in a while in an editorial or a feature on someone or just talking about the history of, say, a certain module or dungeon or character or something. And it would give you this glimpse of the early days of gaming in this different way of playing. Um, and that's something that really stuck with me. Uh, and I, I think like the big one was uh, Knights of the Dinner Table, KODT, uh, one of the best gaming comics ever made. It's about a group of gamers like at the table and their antics. The like we attack the gazebo meme comes from Knights of the Dinner Table. And like mm, right. they did the whole strip on that. Well, one of the things that they had of that was uh, the DMs locally in the town they lived in uh, in Indiana all like they would regularly get together and talk about their games. And, you know, they all played in the official Hackmaster game world and they did a big crossover where they traded players. They traded DMs. They did a major crossover event that had everyone's characters getting mixed up and, you know, and it ended in a giant tournament and everyone was fighting each other and all that kind of stuff. And there was drama involved, but that 
I thought that was so amazing. And that was the type of thing that you read about the old days with Gary Gygax and Jim Ward and Frank Menser and, uh, uh, you know, and all I, I'm forgetting so many names off of this, but all of that old school Dave Arneson, of course, the old school original crew doing D&D. That's how it was. They were these living campaigns uh, that uh, were interconnected and where they shaped the world through what they did. And you saw that legacy and the names on the spells and the names of the places and realizing like this came about because somebody's character did this. And now it's part of this shared history that, you know, thousands or millions or however many gamers are out there, we're all sharing together. And that was like really incredible. There seemed to be something magic about that. And that's what I wanted to be able to capture and recreate. And so, so I started running a bunch of games. I realized if, that was going to continue that I had to take, I had to own my experience and I had to make it happen. And so if I couldn't conspire with a bunch of other DMS to do some kind of event like that, I was just going to have to run a bunch of games and have them all intersect and cross over. And so at one point I was running six games simultaneously, six separate campaigns across four different game systems that were all connected as part of the same overarching campaign and meta plot. And you were part of this. Like I had a final adventure that wrapped all that up that actually involved players from multiple different groups all coming together for this massive high level battle. And probably the, I mean, I've not frankly gone to end a lot of campaigns and like, I loved the ending to this campaign. It was, it just seemed, it was perfect. It was perfect. And it's not the last we're going to see of those characters, but you know, for this movie, for this era, you know, that's <laughs> we put a bow on it. it. It did definitely have that like Avengers Endgame vibe, that sort of on your left kind of moment, you know, and the like everyone coming together, which made for a long combat, but it was very epic. And I think that everybody was like emotionally sort of bought into that, and that really helped nail that last moment where we had we had talked about separating into different groups and some making it not making it but then everyone decided that they were going to like right into the sunset together basically and and risk it all when and that was pretty yeah pretty magical yeah and i had not expected that and um full credit to andrew because it was his character it was andrew who was the one who who first brought up you know what like it let's all go let's let's all <laughs> yeah. sail off under the sea of time whatever happens you know uh right yeah you know and that was like a huge like final apotheosis for his character and his story arc which had been all about like finding yeah. himself and leaving behind the kind of constraints he put on himself from being you know holding himself be, being in the connection. shadow of his parents and yeah. this kind of obligation that he felt and finally becoming his own person and it was a uh, really really beautiful and so that's and that was exactly what I wanted for everybody. And that's what I wanted to recreate because I grew up with this legacy that I mostly got to like hear about. I got to to bask in the final glow of this golden age that I, I frankly missed that I felt like I'd missed. And, I, you know, the closest I'd had was, uh, you know, gaming as a as a kid with my friends. We're just like every day after school, we're just going to go and play the same campaign and just move on. And sure, we came up with stupid bullshit like fighting a lich in a f-ing crawl space and killing him with a dagger. But, um, y- you know, <laughs> like, 
I had that's great. I had characters get older and like advance and fall in love. Yeah, and like I had a paladin that I ran for five years who only got to level seven, but I played him every week. And uh, Athos to Fears, who I blankly ripped off from the Three Musketeers during my Dumas phase. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and he drew artist steel. He got married. He married the princess. Uh, he adopted a bunch of orphans and like really threw himself into being their father. He completed a prophecy. He started like saved a kingdom. He later like took over his own land. Like he went through a lot of shit. And I was like thirteen. And so, you know, I couldn't fully grasp the stuff, but at the same time, it let me uh, experience these, like, get a bunch of life experiences in a compacted, like, series of time and have to make all these different types of decisions and get to, like, pretend to do that, but, you know, have to put myself in those situations and think about it. And when you played so often, it got easier and easier to think as those characters, to become those characters. And you kept looking for more things to do with them because you were playing every day. And also your DM needed a breather because, you know, it was your friend's little brother and he was just coming up with whatever he was ripping off of from the cartoons he saw the day before. And sometimes he needed a shopping session or he needed you to look up like, you know, stuff about maintaining your stronghold. Um, and, you know, have that breather or have you self-generate those things for like, hey, I want to go do this thing. I want to go get the crown from a lizard man king because I think that'll be an awesome, you know, mark of accomplishment for the tavern I'm running. Um, and uh, there was a so it's this different style of play that gave you more of a sense of engaging with the living world that I wanted to bring to players and wanted to bring to my campaigns um, and, you know, let them experience that. Uh, a lot of it, honestly, started uh, because of my wife. I wanted her to be able to have these experiences that I'd have to understand why right. I love this game so much. Because she's a gamer too, and she loves playing D and D, and she is a badass D and D gamer too. She knows her rules. She builds awesome characters who are always super creative and super good at the things that they do. Um, you know, she's a great player at any table, and that's great. You know, like. I wish I could take credit for it, but it's all her. Um, but at the same time, like I wanted to be able to share this with her and because it is something I'm so passionate about. It's been such a big part of my life for so long and has been so formative for me, you know, because I learned so much from D&D. I learned more about history and other cultures and other religions from D&D than I ever did from the public school system. Um, you know, and that was something that was both like a huge boon and also hindered my ability to apply myself to school as I got older because I saw less and less value in it since I realized like, wow, most of what I learned, it's relevant and even just is knowledge worth having. I learned not from school, but from reading books, whether it was D&D or other books I read because of D&D or my interest in fantasy or just medieval history or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, if the student can be driven and find a way to learn through play, I mean, that's certainly the best possible outcome. And I I, I wish more people were driven in that way. We wouldn't need school at all. Uh, but uh, alas. So, um, you know, you, you kind of touch on a lot of these things as you as you go through um, talking about creating your interconnected universe and that sort of connection to the old school style of gaming and sharing experiences. So I'm getting kind of a sense of your sort of core philosophy as you go into D and D, but if you could kind of 
I don't know, in, in a way, summarize, you know, what is the spike philosophy? What are, what are the tenets of the school of spike dungeon mastering? What would you say that looks like? I take my fun very seriously. <laughs> That's really yeah. what it gets down to. Uh, you know, I throw yeah. myself into it, but um, I do view DMing as like being a director for a uh, theater or movie or television. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, that's not just about directing the people. You are directing all of the elements that are creating the illusion uh, that you are uh, for your audience. And, you know, in the yeah. case of stage or, or TV, you know, the audience or the people who are watching it. In D&D, I guess these days with streaming, it could be the audience that's watching it. And that's something you have to consider. That's why a DM like Matt Mercer is so great because he, he has that stage presence too. But normally your audience is your players. And so sure. you are both, you know, treating them as actors and uh, audience at the same time. But that just means that your end goal is the same. How do I elicit the response that I want? Emotional, uh, physical, verbal, whatever the case may be. Uh, and how do I manipulate all of the elements of the stage? Uh, to create that, to, to elicit that response, to create that proper state in the audience and in the actor that I need for them to get the response that I am seeking here. Because, uh, you know, even if you're winging stuff as a DM, you have something in mind, you know, even if it's just the vague sense of, I want something cool. You, know, you may have something more specific in mind, but still your ultimate goal is to get that response from the players. And not everyone wants this, wants that level of depth from play. I don't. Ex- that's true. Like that's you don't need to run your game like I run my game. I put a lot into it because it is worth it to me. That value is there for me. And when I experience what I think of those more, I guess, higher echelons, more sophisticated uh, 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 experiences of play, it creates that value for me. And that's something that I think Dean is harder to achieve in D and D these days, uh, despite D and D being way more accessible than it's ever been in the past. And, um, well, why do you think that is, you know, like maybe we're going to sound a little bit like boomers here, but like, you know, why is it maybe harder for the kids these days? for the lack of a better term, to sort of get to that vulnerable state. It, it's different. Um, I mean, it's different education as far as narrative. Uh, you know, kids don't read as much. It doesn't mean that that's, mm. that there aren't readers, and certainly D&D players are more likely to be readers. Um, but, you know, just as a general thing, like, you don't read the Lord of the Rings in school most of the time anymore. Um there's not as much of an expectation of just general yeah. reading either. And the format, like kids are still reading lots of it and gathering lots of information and finding out all kinds of things, but it comes in a different narrative. They're not learning it in that format that you, that like, for instance, I got it from, from watching, you know, formulaic, growing up watching a bunch of super formulaic, you know, action TV shows like Transformers and GI Joe and like Thundercats and all that. And then going into, you know, comics and, um, uh, and fantasy novels and D and D and everything and playing through all that early intro stuff that was, uh, uh, teaching you step by step how to go through the game. Like now you get a starter set 
it teaches you how to get through the first adventure to a degree. A lot more of it is about like learning the system and, and having fun, which it should be. Um, but there's not as much of that orientation toward like it's kind of expected. Like once you play through one of the box sets, essentials or the beginner box, then you're going to make the hop into full fledged five and, um, you know, and connect it to one of the adventures there. And I think that that, uh, uh, part of that impact is that they're not giving players and DMs enough time to kind of learn how you go through this to a degree. Um, and also how to really do the immersive elements. And I think that's, what's really missing there. Um, contributing to that i think that a lot of us getting used to just hitting buttons for things and playing quick time sure. events and video games has trained us like by default if you run into a problem in D, uh you're going to ask like can i make a check can i roll a d20 can i use one of my sure. character's abilities to solve the problem and sometimes that's great and that's sometimes the answer but other times what the dm or the adventure that is written is looking for is for the players to think, to stop and think, well, hey, if I were this person faced with this situation, what might I reasonably do? And having nothing to do with like what's an activatable ability on your character sheet, but rather like, huh, like I'm going to look for, you know, a source of water or something. If there's must be something feeding this pool because the water isn't stagnant. So maybe there's an underwater source that we can't see you know, going through a train of deductive reasoning or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we have been trained for that to a degree, uh, especially when you look at the earlier editions, everything just took longer. Everything was just a lot, like took more effort. And there was an expectation of the players that was explicitly laid out that like, Hey, you're going to have to think to do some of this stuff yourself. Like, you're not going to yeah. get a saving throw in the Tomb of Horrors if you don't think to tell your DM how you are checking for traps and what kind of traps you're looking for. You know, it's the type of thing where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to check for traps. And, you know, and the DM's like, okay, were you checking the floor? Like, yeah. I was like, okay, well, you end up choking on poison gas. You weren't checking to see if there was any kind of, you know, gas filtration leading into the room, you know, so you don't get your save because you didn't ask about that specifically. It was hardcore and uh, uh, but it did it was a harsh way to learn like, hey, you need to try and just think through these things sometimes. And um, in the rush to make D&D more accessible for people, I think that and, and to make it more like a video game, which is what we saw uh, much more in a much more pronounced way in 4E, um, D&D lost some of that uh, encouragement to versatility there to to thinking problems through rather than just trying to roll your way through a problem. Uh, and a part of that too is because like characters got lots of abilities and the older editions, like you went many levels without having getting anything significant other than just more hit points. Uh, the original, like the the basic edition of D&D, basic through Immortal, um, there were uh, 36 levels and then 30 tiers of Immortal that you went through. So your first three levels as a fighter, the only thing you got was more hit points. Your Thacko didn't even change. Um, wow. And so they made you, but that also made the games take longer. That meant that it, your progress was harder one, making everything dependent on having to like 
earn XP through actions you took, which were things like getting loot, killing monsters, disarming traps. Certain things would be denoted in the adventure as getting you extra XP. And then every class had a list of actions related to their class and their theme that would get you extra XP. And so while I think it's good overall that we moved away from that type of stuff, uh, cause it was too extreme at the same time. Like it was meant to be a, like if you wanted to get the most out of the system, then you had to learn how to do things that your character would reasonably be doing in character. You had to learn to do things that your character was like good at that fulfilled their role in a party, particularly when going through a dungeon or going on adventures. Those were the things that earned you XP, you know, so you could go and talk to shopkeepers all goddamn day long. But if you weren't doing things that contributed to in the olden days, like moving the story along, which was entirely predicated on going through the dungeon or going through the adventure, then you were not going to be rewarded for that. Um, and so I, I think that, again, it was too harsh, but at the same time, it did teach you and made you kind of go through this process and earn your wings as it were to like graduate through the different levels of uh, gaming and and also to take on a more uh, uh, complex gaming experience and I think that's another thing that's like um, that goes on these days and I've, I've been ranting for a while do you want to jump in at some point here I'd like, <laughs> oh, okay. sure yeah no problem. Actually, I was going to mention when you're talking about like bringing other things to the table, you know, like, well, what else do you have other than a button on your sheet? You know, I was running this one shot last night and I said, uh, look, yeah, I had made this map in incarnate, right? And I had put like little Easter eggs and little hidden things throughout it. And I said, make a perception check. And so immediately they roll dice and, and fair enough, because I literally told them to do yeah. that. Right. But then I said, Okay, now make a real life perception check. And they were like, what? <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and then finally they just looked around and then one of them was like, Oh, hey, look, there's a chest. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, go check that uh-huh. out. Um, and, and you know, so it's like little things like that. Like, what can I do beyond, uh, just, yeah, mashing the button or the invisible button that is on my sheet somewhere and, and really using that creative play. I really like that yeah. idea. And I like the idea that I think that the past has something to teach us, like kind of getting back to the fundamentals there. And I think that's something that was jarring for me when I first started playing with you, um, because I ha- had come from a completely opposite angle mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> into, into, into learning the game. I, I can't, the, my first experience with D and D was, well, actually I used to see those ads that you talked about. Mm-hmm. in the comic books because my dad was a huge comic book collector and i remember seeing that and asking him about that and he basically said it's too expensive don't ask right uh, which was probably not even true <laughs> but anyway he told he told me like nah, don't worry about it <laughs> like we moved on and uh my first real experience with D was actually playing Baldur's gate on the pc mm-hmm. and so I came from it from the video game generation. And then I went and met Andrew at art school where we were studying game design. And so for me, D and D was this like testing ground of, you know, where you would use like video game concepts mm-hmm. and, and then, and then running into a game with you, that was like, Oh, I have a very different view. And, and I think I butt heads with that in the beginning, but I think overall, 
you know, it was a better experience for me to, to get that because I never had that sort of old school Gygaxian teacher, right? Mm-hmm. That person that had that, that way of like you watch the animated spell book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And, and my favorite episode is when he's like sitting down with like these old veteran gamers and he rolled up like the most like sort of edge Lord OP ridiculous character. You remember mm-hmm. which one I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Drops like a literally like a half angel, half demon. And he like does his intro. Yeah. Thing, like He drops like a comet <laughs> from the sky. Uh, oh yeah. 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 And then they, they like, look at each other and I love how he animates it. Right. He just nails it. And they, they just like, well, you're, you die anyway. Um, here's your new character. And they have hand him a halfling rogue. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's like, I love, that he has such a great attitude about that, that he, that he looks upon that fondly, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there's, um, yeah, there's, there's a tough love in there, which a lot of people <laughs> misunderstand. Um, you know, that sure. attitude turns into gatekeeping. It turns into, you know, toxic, uh, behaviors. Um, it, you know, so that's always something to worry about, but, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but, sure. but at the same time, like, there is, like I was talking about, there's a certain reasoning behind that tough love, behind that seeming harshness. And it's because, like, it's expected that you're going to work your way up. And it's not just about, like, you know, you have to prove yourself to us. Like, the game is literally designed for you to, like, work your way into greater complexity and greater systems. And that was how it was originally presented. Um, you know, one thing you've brought up and we've talked about a bunch and it's, and it's funny, but you're like, man, there's a lot of useful stuff in the DMG when you actually sit down and read it. (laughs) When you actually read it. It is like, and that's something I rediscovered too. I take it for granted. Um, that's why I have all this, like every edition of the game and go back and reread this stuff because you realize like, wow, there's really solid advice. A lot of like they answer questions or show you how to do things so that you can learn the process or, you know, learn the perspective behind something. And, um, but still now, and the way it's been for a while is you get all that at once, like a D and D compiled everything together. It was like, here's the entire rule set like everything in the game right from the get-go. They compressed it down to only 20 levels instead of, you know, 36 and then 20 and then 30 levels of divinity. Um, but, uh, it, you know, they still put it all in one book there and that's how it kind of stayed. You had the DMG, you had the player's handbook and it was like, here's the whole system. And then here's 80,000 splat books to go with it. They're going to add even more rules to the system, which was an issue with all the additions that thankfully they have not repeated with 5e. Um, but it was still like a lot that they gave to you at the, at once. And what people really wanted to engage with right off the bat was like, how do I make a character? How do I get playing? And as a DM, it's like, how do I start running them through a game? How do I get some monsters in front of them and run a combat? You know, uh, everyone wants to get playing right away and you start playing and you start playing through these adventures but they're not designed like the adventures were in the old days to introduce you to like uh uh escalating complexity of play and of the system not just in like oh here's new rules but literally in how you approach the game as a player and a character um and that was something that was built into a built-in hero's journey that was meant to teach the players and the dm and you get it a little bit with the campaigns, but not 
very well and it creates issues. Uh, you know, touching on what I was saying before, I, you know, there's uh, uh, the start of most of the 5e campaigns is not very good. And in fact, almost all of the major campaigns that have been published tell you that you can throw out the first five levels of adventure and just do whatever you want yeah. there because yep. you're supposed to do either the d d Essentials box set or the beginner box and you start your party with that and then you graduate them to doing one of the campaigns and that way you're able to throw out all the low-level stuff. Now, what's that, what that's meant is that for the parties that start out doing you know, Lost Minds of Fandelver or whatever – uh, they're going to have this, it's going to be a much more, I think, tighter narrative experience. And there's a little more continuity to it, but it's still not, um, uh, I, I don't think it's still like great. It's still these awkward transitions to the main campaign adventures. But because they started out with those beginner box sets, uh, those adventures are written to be much more, uh, I guess, tightly knit than the beginning of the main campaigns. Yeah. You're, it's assumed that you're probably starting with starter characters that are pre-generated. They're just, yeah. Everyone's from the same town. Everyone has a very, like, they're giving you a limited set of choices for abilities and archetypes and, you know, backgrounds or whatever. You know, they're presenting you this simplified version of the game that's directing everyone along a path. And that means that all the characters in those groups and that group itself are going to be progressing through learning the game together and are going to be very localized and bond over that and those shared adventures like right from the get-go before they transition into, you know, uh, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage or Tomb of Annihilation or Storm King's Thunder or Rhyme of the Frostman or whatever. Um, and all of them are meant to be able to have your group transition directly from there. I think that experience would probably be really, really great because of that. But when you just play through the beginning part of these adventures, as I know we've like found in Storm King's Thunder, and I have found yeah. running things like uh, Tyranny of Dragons and Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, um, the early parts of the campaigns are shitty for giving the characters motivation and a reason to be getting involved in this stuff and a reason why they're involved and not other people who are more interested or would have like more at stake or whatever. Like there's a, they're just not very well written. And it very, yeah. they're all designed to feel like anybody could be here. It's not that you're special. It's that you're the people that showed up at the table. Um, and that sucks. Like, just frankly, that sucks. And I think that's a big, big uh, 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 issue with the 5e era of uh, adventures and campaigns that they've released because they're not good at making them personal and connected. And so that feeling... It could be really difficult, I think, to write a story without a protagonist in mind, right? Like, you're, you're, you're basically saying, well, how do I write for everybody? I think that's a real challenge. Well, it is. It absolutely is. But also, you know, they're a massively successful company at this point. They've been doing this for a long time. And they've done it before. They know how to do this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to thread that needle, but it is definitely threadable. And uh, and I've seen it done. Like, I love the Odyssey of the Dragon Lords uh, 5e campaign that was released by James Olin, who was the creative director behind the Baldur's Gate series of games, among others. Uh, and he did all the story for that. And so... Uh, uh, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords. It gives you a list of uh, uh, like divine paths to for your players to choose. It's Greek themed, and so each of them is going to have a path toward if they want, basically becoming divine, much like the original edition of the game. And 
And so it gives a specific list of like things they have to accomplish, which gives them like independent goals from the rest of the party. All of these things are chosen to be things that are also going to be part of the adventures. And then it has in all of the adventures, there's individual call outs for like for these players, if they're the doomed one or they're the demigod or they're, you know, the prophesied one or whatever, like here's some special info related to their plot. And so they give you general guidelines and they say like, hey, if you're this path, this is generally your background. Like your family's missing or your family's alive or, or whatever, or, you know, someone close to you died and now you're seeking answers. But, um, you know, they let the player fill in those blanks, but then it is written into the adventure. They've got like eight or nine of these paths. And so, and even if players double up, like it's easy enough to create some variance in them. I have two players in the group that I'm running that are both demigods and freaking hilarious. Oh man, that's a, That'll be a long story, so I'm not going to go into it. But uh, their their father <laughs> is very. I re, I did do bro Zeus, and they loathe him. <laughs> and like every time I heard them, like it gave me like strength and vitality as a DM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your tears sustain me. Yeah, yeah. You, you talked a little bit about like sort of that emotional catharsis that you're kind of going for with uh with your players, mm-hmm. like as a GM. You know, but on the player side, you know, you mentioned one of your characters already, you know, what are some, you know, one or two stories where you had a really satisfying emotional experience as a player on the other side of the screen? Well, uh, so the first one that comes to mind is the uh, pair of characters that I play in your venture game, which have been some of my absolute favorites because uh, I've been so emotionally invested in them. Uh, my tiefling bard or telfling because you have a homebrew heritage system which is awesome and so he's half elf and half tiefling but Adel Adel was the original character but it was this tiefling named Elam uh, my tribute to Garrick the best character from DS9 Um, and uh, (laughs) yes (laughs) uh, Watatiri who uh, was uh, a, a soul essentially trapped in a ring of mind shielding. I found the fact that the ring of mind shielding um, could hold someone's mind, their soul, basically their life essence in it when they died. Fascinating. It's like, what would happen if someone was in there for a long time? So my first character in one of your campaigns, his daughter had been slain during this invasion. She had like her essence had been saved. Her mind had been saved in this ring. And so he was like trying to stop the old one from, destroying more worlds like his and hers had been destroyed and then after the campaign ended he was trying to like get a body for her basically that was never fully resolved so i was like okay i'm gonna have this character pick up that thread and so watatiri or tiri for short um they were from an islander uh, uh like a maori and polynesian and hawaiian inspired uh uh world but they uh uh you know they were going to share this body and so um, that was like really interesting. And I got to start dropping hints and stuff like that. Uh, and eventually they separated and it became this like really intense experience between them. And while I never intended for them to, uh, you know, be anything more than, you know, two people stuck in this bad situation, I wasn't planning to have a romance with myself. Um, there did start to be <laughs> that there and where it really culminated was uh, the town of Fairmiddle. Uh, we you ran an adventure for us, which should have been much much simpler. Basically, <laughs> yeah, really should have been. Yeah. Basically, trying to root out this evil cult that was in this town, and they'd basically taken over the town. 
And we made a lot of questionable decisions and the entire party got captured. And, um, you know, this had been very frustrating for me because at that time there were some issues with the group dynamic and I wasn't yeah. feeling heard. And, uh, and sure. That had specifically led to the entire party getting captured, except for me and our monk. Uh, and so we basically had to like deal with like you started an email uh, 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 campaign, essentially going on between the sessions for like what we were doing in this twenty four hours between sessions to try and like help our companions. And uh, that was the first time with the characters I got to really cut loose. And that all culminated in this big rescue and uh, or attempt to do that. And right before we went to like we rescued all the party and then right before we're going to go confront the big bad evil guy, um, my characters got captured and we did an interrogation and you and I had, I think, like 70 emails and ended up being like 64, <laughs> Something like that. 64 pages <laughs> uh, when I took out every like just put in only the story text and stuff that was in there of this right. interrogation and this intense. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, this intense like it, it, psychic interrogation that was going on in all these dreamscapes and stuff. And it really was like me having to inhabit one than the other of these characters as the bad guy's attention switched between them and you just like pushing me. And it became this real battle of wills, this battle of wits that was going on. And even to the point yeah. of uh, the bad guy Tosset trying to like, I realized he was trying to get at a specific memory and one of the characters like having to injure themselves having to rip off an arm like to get themselves free to uh uh be able to cast modify memory and erase their own memory so that he couldn't get to it um but the huge culmination was this was they're having to confess their feelings for each other and it was this really intense moment and in these two characters like we explored so much of the characters past and in doing so, I was able to channel a lot of my own like issues that I had been worked on for years through therapy and issues that had come up in, uh, uh, you know, in my relationship with my wife over the like more almost decade and a half that we've been together now. Um, and just kind of like get this catharsis for all these things. And I was like sharing all the emails with her too. And, you know, when they confessed their love to each other, um, you know, it was something like it. I cried. It made her cry because there were things that I put in there that I knew not only that I felt, but they were things that I knew that she had felt and things that she had like literally had teary yelling things at, at, at Elam at me that I knew she had felt before. Um, you know, yeah. like one of the things that I have, uh, you know, struggled with throughout my life is suicidal ideation. And that's something that I explored mm. with the character of Elam and that he had struggled with in his guilt and feelings over all of this. And, you know, it had allowed me to work through a lot of this myself. It also meant putting a lot of trust in you and exposing myself to a lot of vulnerability. Um, but it's that juice is worth the squeeze to me. It's like I, I was saying before about like, I take my fun very seriously. It's worth it mm, to me yeah. to allow myself to be hurt. Um, frankly, to be vulnerable and rather open to being hurt um, or just experiencing pain. Even if someone's not hurting me, even if it's just reliving that memory um, so that, the the so that I can get the scene I'm looking for so that uh oh well, I mean <laughs> I get the catharsis with the character when I'm running them 
you know, as a DM, I've done that. I have like bawled my eyes out and ugly cried as a DM before. I have lit my arms on fire, uh, like literally. Yes, you, <laughs> um, you know, I I have gone too cool. far at times. Uh, there has been, you know, I put personal stuff in that I probably should that I should have changed. Um, you know, I referenced my wedding vows once with a very intense scene that was with someone other than my wife. That was a bad idea. Um, at the same time, that was an incredible scene. And that was like the kind of Kubrickian dedication that I put into this stuff was that to me, I was just like, I'm going to make this incredibly intense emotional scene that has, you know, everyone at the table like sniffling. And, and, and we did. Um, it was a moment where, uh, a friend of ours, Ren, was like a new player in my campaign at the time, and her character, it turned out, was uh, the estranged wife of the villain that the party was after. That same villain was also the father of one of the other characters in the party, who was the daughter of this new player. Neither of them knew that wow. before the session. Neither of them knew that they that their characters were related. And uh, they did only one of them knew who the villain was that they were going after the uh, introduction of uh, Ren's character had had actually she got killed as a sacrifice at the beginning of that and then brought back as like reincarnated literally as like as a different partially different person. Um, And so they had this intense confrontation with the big bad evil guy. And, uh, throughout it, like there was, you know, some people had not known that the others were alive. They were just realizing that it was their daughter that was there. And in the end, as they were like talking and they thought they were finally getting through him and trying to talk him down, uh, he repeated their wedding vows, which were the ones I had, you know, taken a translation of some of the vows that we'd used in our wedding. Uh, and that mm. was a mistake. <laughs> um, your, your, your wife wasn't happy about that. I take it. Yeah, and that was insensitive of me. I'm like, no, like yeah. that was like, that was me being too sure. intense about this and not thinking things through. But at the same time, you know, overall, what I was looking for was creating this emotional intensity that I needed in myself for this scene as they repeated their vows. And right as they thought they got through to him, they did. He pulled their like one of their blades into himself and sacrificed himself to disrupt the ritual and keep things from, you know, the cult of the dragon from succeeding what they were trying to do there. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the players ugly cried, like broke down. And, um, you know, they thanked me afterwards and everyone else at the table was like in various states of emotional distress. Um, (laughs) but it was super memorable and it was a real experience and it created this bond between the party. Uh, you know, I did the same thing with your group in a different way. It was a very abusive Mm. experience in many ways. You guys were stuck in this dungeon for a long time. It was difficult it was hard and then you guys got dropped in the abyss and those who had a hard time of like letting go of their you know grudges or just you know things they've been holding on to for too long they had a harder time like adapting to that whereas your character i mean he was going through a lot of apotheosis and change anyway at that point he was he was on stage three of his hero's journey um that's right 
Uh, yeah, I'm like trying to go yeah. through it. <laughs> but <laughs> you know? but Andrew wasn't aware of that. He wasn't consciously aware of that, but his character did go through that. And he was able to let go yeah. of the past and redefine himself in this situation and found like I know he's talked about it a bunch. It was some of his favorite sessions. Like it he oh, yeah. just he loved it. And and it, it was infectious. It could like, you know, it made me happy. It made you happy. I could tell it was making everyone in the party happy just because he was connecting so much with what was going on. And that was really, really special. And um, yeah, Promise wanted to ride around hell collecting souls. And we all just wanted to be there with him. <laughs> you know, like our raise on Detra just became watching Promise collect mm-hmm. souls. Yeah, they're giving <laughs> riding around on <laughs> like <know>. hell powered <laughs> motorcycles while, you know, that was awesome hunting too. souls on the abyss. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I did a lot of crazy stuff in that. You know, the other thing that I really did was I made you all feel special. Like very beginning of that campaign. Yeah, I do this with every campaign. Um, you know, something crazy happens. There's something that happens that binds everyone together. And it may be like right place, right time, but almost everyone is there for a reason in the first place. And inevitably it turns out everything was connected anyway. Um, which I do a lot because I overplan, but any DM can do it. <laughs> right. You just like imply that things are connected or that there's a grand conspiracy or oh maybe something more is going on anytime you're contradicted or players are like wait that's not what you said last time or that's not what we heard from this like that is interesting that you're hearing two different pieces of information <laughs> i wonder that's what right. that could mean you don't need to have an answer for that your players will probably come up with a better one than what you come up with eventually you may have to come up with an answer whenever you pull out of your will be fine and if it's just a further mystery that's fine too. You have until the end of the campaign to wrap this stuff up. And frankly, you're not going to get it all wrapped up. You're just going to like shoehorn that into the next campaign and use that as the idea for what you're doing there. But um, I think that, I think that's fantastic. I, I, I love, uh, I love what you've added to, to what I know from this hobby and what I've learned. And I feel like these, like the appreciation for what I, what I see is like the fundamentals, but also getting to that sort of, there's more responsibility on players to engage in their sort of own emotional catharsis. You know, I, I would say those are probably the two or three biggest points that I feel like I've learned from, from playing with you both as having you as a player and as being a player in your games. And so to that end, I I definitely want to say thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and experience with me. Oh, I mean, I, I appreciate it. Um, it's what I, I want to do because I was fortunate to have people that shared that with me. And as an adult through the magic of social media, I've gone out and harassed a bunch of these like game designers <laughs> and creators and gotten to be friends with the ones that can tolerate me. Um, but it gives me insight I'm into this. Yeah. Like I, I play with a bunch of um, uh, a forgotten realms campaign that's using 3.5 rule set with a bunch of guys who wrote for second and third edition, like D and D for TSR and Watsi and wrote a bunch of the realms lore. And that's super cool. But also like you realize like, wow, these guys are not like genius gamer writer gods. Like, they're kind of this, they're a little, they know more than like the average gamer, but they're kind of just average gamers in a lot of ways too. But <laughs> I mean, That's the right. counterpoint to that uh, is that, you know, the people who created D&D and the people who are writing it and who continue to write it, they're not dumb people. Like they studied literature, no. they studied history. Um, Jim Ward 
controver- modern controversies about him aside, uh, was incredibly educated and tried to do like did his damnedest to make everything as like accurate as he could. When he made deities and demigods, like you couldn't just go and look up the Wikipedia article on every religion that existed on Earth. He had to go out there and research all this stuff at universities, and um, you know, and he had a degree in history and put that into this all of them as old school war gamers studied history a lot and it wasn't just how did this battle go but what led to this battle what were the things that caused it what were the things that uh shaped the world and created these opportunities for us to play with a bunch of little metal dolls that we're going to play war with um and that is reflected in the early editions of D because you see that you know what do you get in the original campaign settings they don't give you um, you know, lists of all these stories of different adventurers and adventuring bands that have done this and that. There's barely a mention of people like Tensor or Rarier or Tasha or any of the others. Um, it's mostly talk of what nations did, of major battles that were fought that shaped, you know, the modern political boundaries. What was shaping trade? What were the things that created tension between nations? And, you know, what were the major points of interest? And then they're like, fill in the blanks. Whatever you come up with, your homebrew is here. Like you make that. The first thing Gary Gygax told you to do before worrying about a kingdom or an overarching plot or anything else was design the first four levels of dungeon. That was the very first thing they had you do when you were learning to be a DM. And, uh, you know, and they expected to give you this like toolkit. Like here's all the things, the points of reference that you need to then be able to extrapolate you know, what the world will be like. And then we want you to play in this playground there. And so that put a lot more expectation on the players because you were having to define what the campaign was going to be. At the same time, that was baked into it too. When you got to a certain level, you got followers, you got a stronghold, you became beholden to somebody because of some of these things, or you were trying to ascend as a, as a druid through the different circles, which meant that you had to like, you know, kiss somebody's feet, you know, you know, or someone's ring or whatever. Like you had to start playing politics or finding finding out who your rival is and murdering them. Um, which literally <laughs> to get to certain levels as a druid, you had to kill because there was only one person with that title because every level had a title beyond a certain point. Only one person in the world mm. or one person in the region got that title and you had to kill the other guy that had that first. Um, and so uh, they expected you to go through this advancement. And there's this quote that I I love that is just a random comment from Frank Mentzer, who's one of the original like writers and designers of the game. But um, uh, he, he put it up on Facebook a couple of years ago. And, and I think it just so fantastically describes the kind of mindset that they had in designing this. So he said, at low levels in novice play, you experience the joy of sheer survival and often fail. Encumbrance matters. A plus one weapon matters. At levels five to nine, you are experienced and can tackle bigger fantasy stories. Minor bookkeeping issues start to fade. Multiple magical resources add many options. At levels 11 to 15, your perspective shifts to the broader world, and the issues you face may involve myriad cultures and valid differences with no single right answer. The complexity of the world has real effect. Above level 15, you should be into major and lengthy epic stories. Personally, you should have matured beyond force solves everything. Encumbrance is a worry of the past. Magical containers. Uh, and magic is abundant. Shorter adventures are more of the special problem needs solving by the A-team tasks requests by major rulers. At the highest levels, I challenge you as players to overcome mortal foibles. The search for personal power, fame, wealth, and more. Your character and 
yourself should be refocusing on eternal principles, using the paraphernalia of the game to further inner goals that are not petty or peripheral. Thus, you arrive at a mortal play with a viewpoint that is radically different from all previous transcending moral concerns entirely. The scope of adventuring is similarly matured and escalated. And frankly, you might not be up to it. D&D was the hero's journey, and it took you through that. Not just your character, you as a player, and how you progress within D&D, and ultimately how they wanted, they were hoping that you would progress intellectually, emotionally. You know, the game took longer to play. Uh, you know, he's talking about levels here that use the standard 20-level system that was adopted in AD&D first edition. But before that, when it was, when you went from beginner to expert to companion to master to immortal, it went up to 36 levels through master, and then it went through 30 levels of divinity in immortal. Well, immortals are just short, shy, basically gods. And so you played for a lot longer. You put a lot more into your characters. In the beginner set of rules, which was beginner set for, or basic set, I sorry, should say, for both the players as a player's book and a DM's book, they gave you what you need to know for making a basic character for adventuring in a dungeon. In the expert set, they expand more on towns, on settlements, and on getting like what it means to become a landowner because you start hitting levels where you automatically own land. They add in more rules for greater, for deeper skill systems, for proficiency systems, for how you craft things, for how you deal with like siege weapons and stuff. They also just start to te- to touch on um, like higher planes of magic and stuff like that. The companion set they add in siege warfare, they add in mass combat rules, they add in like uh, the most basic rules for like here's like getting sucked into another dimension or going through portals. They first start talking to you about the concept of there being these other dimensions and magical realms you can end up going to, and you just start getting access to spells to let you do that or let you talk to your deities. Then going into the master set, they talk about kingdoms, about how you map it, about what the logistics are, about running a stronghold. They detail the planes. They talk about what they mean and what, like how they relate to faiths and how they relate to the prime material world. You have means of going there. They introduce entities that now are not like local rulers or even kings of kingdoms. You're dealing with Orcus, the Archduke of the Undead uh, down in the abyss. You're dealing with, I mean, Asmodeus wasn't really a factor then, but you're dealing with, you know, the arch devils, uh, you know, or you're dealing with uh, overzealous celestials in many cases too, especially when it was just the three alignment system of law, neutrality, and chaos. And the master set, like, that's when you might be ruling your own kingdom, your King Conan sitting on his throne in Aquilonia, looking back on all you've done. And as a DM, they and as like the players are getting introduced to these new systems as a DM, they were telling you in each of these books, like, okay, now here's how you'd build adventures with political intrigue. Here's how you deal with mass combat. Here's how you deal with extra planner entities. Here's how you build demons. Like they gave you what you needed for when you had advanced that level of play. And of course, the, the ultimate was immortal when your players became gods and literally traded in all of their mortal experience into PowerPoints that they used to buy their divine abilities and define what do I represent? What does the totality of my character's experiences over 36 levels, over these four box sets, if I'm boiling them down to a basic concept, to a basic tenet and set of beliefs, to a basic way they wish to shape the world, what is that? 
what do I need to accomplish that? How do I see myself accomplishing that through what means, through what perspective or ideology and approach to that? And so naturally, to rise to that challenge, as Frank Menser had been talking about, you had to progress in your thought processes as a player, in your ability to think as your character, to process these deeper concepts, which ultimately, inevitably, would have to be involve your own introspection about yourself and what your beliefs are and what they mean and what you want to express and how you want to express them through this character. Uh, and that's something that I certainly, I think, is lost. And in that view of the old games of just being harsh and unforgiving, you're like, yes, they were, but that's because they're, they were trying to guide you along this path and this progression. And much like the cycle of reincarnation in, you know, say Hinduism, which it's how I was raised. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole other topic. What's it like being raised Hindu in a Christian <laughs> nation, growing up always feeling like yeah. never fully American, always feeling like the outsider. Um, but yeah, like that was the idea was that if you didn't get these concepts and you weren't able to rise to that challenge, you ended up dying. You're going to have to start going through this again. And, you know, most campaigns end within the first 10 levels, a lot end by the first six, yeah. you know, uh, few campaigns run to the high levels these days. And a lot of camp, a lot of DMs complain that it's hard and it is to a degree. It is harder because it's the rules are important, but they're a framework for being able to structure ideas in a way that you guys can interact with them in a game mechanical system. But ultimately it's asking you deeper questions of self. You know, Amorak's transformation at the end of the uh, Tempest of the Plains multi-campaign that I ran was not <laughs> about a die roll or being able to do enough damage or being able being the one that lands the killing blow on the big bad guy Manzacorian or anything like that. It was about whether he would choose, uh, you know, rigid faith. And, and I guess loyalty to that degree versus, you know, to the greater good, to what a uh, greater cause versus, uh, uh, your loyalty to your friends, to an individual and personal good. And, uh, it, you know, he had chosen, I mean, he chose the same thing both times, frankly, but regretted and felt guilty about the choice the first time and then felt confident and, uh, not just satisfied, but, you know, uh, 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 maybe a little more yeah, justified, justified or, yeah. you know, even yeah, if this absolutely. is against what, you know, the faith, like you were choosing your friends over, uh, this kind of like gods yeah, and the nations, yeah, gods and, and nations like and stuff. Yeah, it was like, do you subscribe to the big concept no matter what and trust like, well, you know, this is bigger than me. They know things I can't understand. Or do you put your personal experience and personal relationships first? And you had done that before and seen it as the wrong choice. And Amorak's growth was getting presented with that choice again and being able to make the same choice and say, I'm making the right choice by doing this. Yeah. You know, and he went through that growth arc and he got to the end of it. And, you know, I'm sure you can see the parallels between the hero's journey here 
And the way oh, D&D was literally structured to mimic that. I mean, by the time you're getting to the point of, uh, you know, the higher levels where you're going to other planes and stuff, that's, you know, the meeting with the goddess, uh, uh, you know, or a woman as the temptress and a, a atonement with the father, apotheosis, ultimate boon, like all of this is those high levels of play and getting introduced to that greater realm and, you know, seeing, you know, the multi-planner stuff. And then, uh, you know, the immortal stuff is that right off the bat. I mean, even, even the average dungeon crawl you can see is that as going through, uh, the hero's journey. Cause you have the call to the adventure, you have the hook, which, you know, there's usually some type of refusal to the call there. You almost always have yep. some type of mentor figure. There's almost always something special or supernatural aid. I'll give you this thing to help you with the quest or something. Um, yep. you know, the dungeon is, uh, uh, you know, the special, the world. special world and all that. Right. And then you are returning yeah. from the dungeon to the campaign yeah. world. And that was used to be how it's structured too. Like the you you didn't even play, you didn't even have wilderness rules in DD. You had to buy uh the this wilderness survival board game from Avalon Hill. <laughs> and then the DD books literally told you use this board game, use the rules, you know, we've built our hex maps along the same concepts and use this <laughs> to define like except, you know, when there's an event, it's a monster instead of, you know, uh, 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 you know, an avalanche or something like that, um, or a bear attack. You know, now it's an owlbear. Well, I think owlbear is the perfect word for me to jump in. <laughs> I just, uh, I love that quote you read. I think it's just absolutely stellar. Like the idea of okay, at the highest levels, are we? Can we now get away from? As much as I love building up strongholds and wealth and stuff like that, but it's like, okay, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. You know what those those as you put it eternal or he puts it I suppose I should say eternal principles I think that's really just not to undercut it but the bees yeah. knees well like, and that's what <laughs> that's, a, that's like, what I really that's what Gygax really wanted us all to get to they all had this vision yeah. they just weren't good at communicating it you know Gygax was a harsh guy he had his rough edges and his interpersonal issues and that came through he also had a sarcastic side that do. like did not come through well in print when he would like put his diatribes in dragon magazine and stuff but ultimately that harsh like you know dm versus versus the player's view that he was attributed to having wasn't fully accurate it was that he wanted us to rise to the challenge he wanted players to rise to the challenge like he felt that providing a fully fleshed out campaign world was robbing people of the opportunity of going through this journey and creating their own world if you fill up all the space then it's harder for people to put fill that space with their own stories like blood and thunder a big part of what i've done is like i have an area you guys are operating in but everything's ephemeral like i have an overland map that kind of is supposed to represent the area around you guys. Oh yeah. But literally there, nothing is set. Nothing's in any specific place. It's all about serving the needs of the story at this point and letting you guys define these yeah. things based off of your actions. And that's and frankly, that's fine for fun for right. us too. And now you guys as players, like the blood and thunder group, I chose those players very specifically because in like almost all their cases, like I knew that they were, I, I wanted to choose players that were had progressed enough as players that I knew they could rise to this challenge that I could give them true agency and like give you guys open ended like determine what you want to do based off of what your character's interests and motivations are and that that's not going to just stall the game because 
all players want to say they want agency and say they want a sandbox game, but like 90% of the time when you give players like, okay, what do you want to do? You're going to be met with silence. You know, they maybe go shopping or something, yeah. but after that, it's like, uh, wait for the next adventure uh, to happen to us. Wait for you to tell us what we're supposed to do next. Oh, that was in that Coville uh, video that you had shared with me earlier where you talked about how like people don't actually want that much choice. Right. They want the illusion of choice. <laughs> um, That's why like you present right. them options as a DM and then you say like, or do you have something else in mind? So you leave it open to them, but then, you know, most of the time you give them that illusion of choice. And yes, his advice yeah. of asking, like not saying anything when the players have a bad idea and then asking about the good idea. <laughs> hundred percent works like i do that i don't always ask about it but i might provide like i'll say nothing about like the bad idea and then during the good idea i will provide like oh here's how the rules and mechanics for that work you know just to yeah. get you guys just to get the players thinking about it yeah it's funny i was he was saying that i was like going back i was like hold up you know kind of kind of remembering a couple moments well well listen um i have so many more questions <laughs> here but uh, I am so yeah, out of yeah. time. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing these insights. It's been absolutely invaluable. I hope I hope a ton of people listen to this because I think it's just so useful. And I think you have a lot to to offer to this this hobby and this community. So thanks so much. I for appreciate being it. Here. Thanks for letting me ramble. Uh, I obviously <laughs> have thought about this stuff a lot. And for shout outs, uh, check <laughs> out. Bit. Nord Games at NordGamesLLC.com. I contributed to Spectacular Settlements and Treacherous Traps, but all of their books are great. Uh, also, our mutual friend, AJ Pickett, is running his Big Pockets Kickstarter right now for a bunch of super yep. awesome silicon like playmats and character sheets and stuff like that. I am all about that stuff. We can talk about props for your game at another point, but like I highly suggest backing that. Uh, and then yep, I backed that one. Yeah. And uh, my friend Jameson and his wife Satine are running a Kickstarter for the Sirens right now through Studio Apotheosis. It's actually they're partnering with Nord for some of the fulfillment for this and stuff like that. Uh, but that looks super cool. And I love bards. My story earlier, uh, Elementary bards. So uh, uh, definitely my character in blood and thunder, bard, bard. exactly <laughs> my very first ad character ever was a bard um it's the best uh, class and he got immediately killed uh literally within the first 15 minutes of the game oh, the very first God. encounter was there was an orc i tried to pickpocket him i failed the role the dm killed me in one hit <laughs> oh my god <laughs> best story I think that's where i should end <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect well um yeah so check those out i did back uh, aj's um kickstarter as well i hi highly recommend it. it looks beautiful um but yeah thanks for listening folks thanks uh to our uh our patrons spike who uh, you just heard from uh as well as logan and kate and uh our brand new patron Falangor, um who i knew back in the old college days uh, thanks so much for contributing to what we're doing here and help us spread the secret ingredient all around. And uh, yeah, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, all those other fun things. Join us on Patreon at the $5 level and join our community and our Discord server and we'll hang out and, and play Valheim and whatever. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening, uh -huh. folks, and uh, we'll see and you next time. what is that secret ingredient? Emotional oh, abuse. Love. Oh,
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. They hit me because tomato, tomato. Uh, well, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next time, stay inspired. Bye. <laughs> That's so weird not doing it with Andrew. Bye. 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 Hasta Good la vista. Job. That was perfect. <laughs>